The challenge is not that immigrants are coming. Ronald Reagan is the one who said, we need to be that shining city on the hill. It's a great thing that immigrants want to come to the United States. The challenge we have is the way they are coming and managing that. And we have brought some of that on ourselves by restricting the ways that people can come in, by limiting so drastically, and by not updating our laws in more than 30 years. Hi, and welcome to the third episode of the podcast, Immigrant Lives. My name is Elizabeth Aranda, and I am Professor of Sociology and the Director of the Immigrant Wellbeing Research Center at the University of South Florida in Tampa, Florida, in the U.S. Today, we will be discussing an important and timely issue concerning changes to the U.S. asylum system and some of the proposals that have been circulating in Congress and their implications for the well-being of asylum seekers. As many of you may know, federal funding for national security priorities, such as funding for Ukraine, Israel, and the border, has been tied to revamping the asylum system. Among the proposals that have been circulated are increasing the credible fear threshold that asylum seekers must meet, limiting the use of humanitarian parole, expanding the practice of detaining asylum seekers and their families, and expanding expedited removal into the interior of the country, among others. But how might these proposals affect the well-being of asylum seekers and their families? We have invited two experts to be with us today to understand how some of these proposals might affect asylum seekers and to put this issue into context, both politically and historically. Cecilia Menjivar holds the Dorothy L. Meyer Chair and is Professor of Sociology at UCLA. Her research falls into two areas, immigration from Central America to the United States and gender-based violence in Central America, with a theoretical focus on state power through bureaucracies and laws as a connecting thread. She has authored four award-winning books, edited 15 volumes, and published dozens of articles, chapters, and essays. With her scholarship, Menjivar has supported class action lawsuits seeking to reverse harmful policies for immigrants. Her work has been recognized with multiple awards. She is the recipient of two ASA Career Awards, a John Simon Guggenheim Fellowship, and an Andrew Carnegie Fellowship. She has served as Vice President of the American Sociological Association and as its President. Teresa Cardinal-Brown is the Bipartisan Policy Center's Senior Advisor of Immigration and Border Policy. She has more than 30 years of experience in immigration law and policy. Brown's career includes stints in government, the private sector, academia, and think tanks. She has been Director of Immigration and Border Policy at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, Associate Director of Business Immigration Advocacy at the American Immigration's Lawyers Association, and worked in the immigration practices of large Washington, D.C.-based law firms. Brown's government career spanned the presidential administrations of George W. Bush and Barack Obama. It's such a pleasure to have you both here as guests today, so I want to thank you for being with us. We might as well just dive in, and I'd like to begin with Professor Menjivar. Immigrants have been crossing the southwest border for decades. Why now is there such a focus on asylum seekers and the asylum system? Very quickly, perhaps because of the my research interest in immigration law and policy, I think based on that, that the current 
attention on asylum stems from the fact that there are very few avenues for people to apply for any other legal status to migrate to the United States. And also, there have been a series of policies enacted in the country that have made it very difficult for people to even begin the process of applying for any form of protection. So there is that happening sort of behind the scenes in the realm of policy and law. But there's also the public face of it where the issue has become very politicized and has been used in different political campaigns. And we cannot forget the impact that that has on how this issue is being discussed and what is being done to address it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And Ms. Brown, what do you think are some of the main problems with the current asylum system? Well, just to add to what Cecilia has said, the focus right now is asylum at the border. And it has to be understood that for the century that we have been enforcing immigration law at the border, the vast majority, 90 plus percent of everybody that was encountered migrating at the border, one was usually Mexican, usually an adult and trying to evade apprehension so they can come work in the United States. And she's right. Much of that is due to the fact of how difficult it is to actually apply for a legal work visa, whether it's a temporary visa or a green card. But starting in the mid 2010s, we saw a significant shift in the arrivals at the border from Mexicans to Central Americans and furthermore to families, children who were not necessarily trying to evade detection by the Border Patrol, but were turning themselves in to ask for asylum. Asylum has always been available at the border, and it was regulated since we passed the Refugee Act in 1980, and then there were adjustments made in the 1990s. So it is legal to ask for asylum at the border, whether or not you enter at a port of entry or between a port of entry. But the numbers previously were so small, and most people did ask for asylum after coming to a port of entry. So Border Patrol didn't have to deal with it very much. This increase in asylum seekers at the border started growing and has been growing since the 2010s so that most arrivals now are trying to access that way of coming into the United States. And that has overwhelmed the capacity of the Border Patrol, of Customs and Border Protection, of our asylum system, of our immigration court system to process those asylum seekers in any timely way. So does our existing asylum system still work in this context is the question of the day. And that's what members of Congress are trying to negotiate right now. I think many of us who look at the situation think that the current number of people arriving is just untenable for our existing asylum and immigration system. We can't keep ahead of it with the resources that can be allocated or are being allocated to the system. And that's resulting in record caseloads at U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, which processes some asylum cases, and in the immigration courts, which process others. And it means that it's years before most people will ever get an answer as to whether or not they qualify for asylum. And that in and itself creates problems because people have years to live in the United States to wait in this unsettled status to wait and determine. Some of them can work while they're here. Some of them can't work while they're here. And it's just creating a lot of challenges. I think we need to recognize that there are both resource issues and I think there are policy issues with how our asylum system at the border was crafted. It was crafted to be an exception rather than the rule 
to how people arriving at the border are processed. Again, with the understanding that asylum seekers would be a minority of people, but it's now the rule. And so I think we do need to recognize that we may need to have a different way to process people who are seeking asylum at the border from the way we process refugees overseas or people who arrive via other means that are flying in from other places, which is a lot fewer people than we used to have. So I just think that there's lots of potential options here, but a lot of it is going to definitely require additional resources, but it probably also will require some changes to how we process asylum seekers at the border. Just to piggyback off of some of the changes you're foreshadowing, do you think some of the proposals that have been circulated on the Hill address any of the issues that you've just raised? And if so, do you believe they should be pursued as part of any comprehensive plan to revamp asylum? So they're talking about a lot of different things, and every day the news brings us in a different idea of what it is they're talking about. So I'll just say that it's a moving target. Mm -hmm. But some of the things that are on the table the way you apply for asylum if you arrive to the U.S.-Mexico border or at any port of entry normally requires an initial screening interview if you're in a process so-called expedited removal. So if you arrive to the country without a proper visa or arrive between a port of entry, which is a violation of immigration law, you can be immediately removed under a process called expedited removal unless you express a fear of returning home. And that's the beginning of an asylum case. That requires an initial screening interview, something called a credible fear interview by an asylum officer to determine if your fear of returning is credible. And if you pass that threshold interview, then you're allowed to proceed into the United States to apply for asylum. That threshold had been set very low, and it had been set low on purpose because the belief was that we really did not want to be in a position where we might inadvertently return somebody to a country where they would be persecuted, which is the standard to gain asylum. However, because of that low threshold, it doesn't bear a close connection to the standard to actually get asylum, which is actually quite difficult. And so you have a lot of people being put into this asylum waiting system who may or may not, many of them probably don't, have a very strong asylum claim at the end of the day. That creates adjudication problems. So one of the considerations is do we increase that initial threshold standard? Other things that are being talked about, right now there is no limit on the number of people who can ask for or get asylum in the United States. Separately, refugees, who are people that we decide if they qualify while they're still overseas, and then if they do, we bring them to the United States, there's an annual limit set on that by the president every year. But that process is long, laborious, and involves the whole world. And so we haven't, frankly, in the last several years, hit the targets that the president has even set. But there's a sense in which that people are avoiding that process and coming to seek asylum, and we don't have caps there. And so maybe we should somehow limit the number of people that we are allowing to apply or are granted asylum each year. I think that's problematic because... We do have international obligations that we can't send people back to countries where they will suffer persecution or torture. And if we're limiting the number of people who apply, we could be violating that. I think it's also problematic because what do we do with the people who exceed that cap? Do we create a new waiting list or are we sending them back to Mexico? Would Mexico take them back? Just implementing that cap could be a challenge. But more importantly, migrants have agency. 
if there is a limitation on whether or not they can apply for asylum, then they may try alternate ways to come into the United States, further putting themselves in danger, creating smuggling operations, evading Border Patrol. And that means that we might have more of a problem of people in the country who have not been vetted at all, have not seen a border agent, and then are just simply undocumented in the United States. So I think limiting access while it may be an idea that makes sense because we have so many people applying exceeds our capacity. The way we do so matters because at the end of the day, the migrants will decide whether or not they're going to come or not. And what we do to try to deter them may be a whole lot less severe than what they're leaving. And I think that's the other important thing to understand. Whether or not somebody technically qualifies for asylum under immigration law, many, many of these migrants, if not the majority of the migrants that are turning themselves in, believe very strongly that their personal circumstances of experiences of poverty or crime or violence do rise to an asylum claim. Whether or not that meets the legal standard, they just they don't know what the standard is, but they're seeking protection. And so they believe they have a good case. So I don't think it's fraudulent per se. It's ignorance in the sense that they just don't know what the requirements are. And when we try to adjust those, since they don't have that specific technical expertise, it's not going to make a lot of difference to them. Like they're leaving because they believe they or their family will will die if they stay where they were. That's a hard thing to overcome by simply saying we're going to limit your ability to get it Mm -hmm. here. And so that's the balancing act that our policymakers are trying to achieve here. How do we manage this vast increase in applicants and arrivals, maintaining our commitment to protecting people who need it, but doing a better job of understanding whether or not somebody qualifies sooner in the process. And then I think we also have to look at where are they coming from? What countries are they going through? Are there other places they can seek protection? And that's an international and foreign policy component that's not really being talked about on Capitol Hill right now, but is very important to this. Professor Manhiva, from your research and experience with asylum seekers, what do you think have been the main challenges that they have had with the U.S. asylum system? And do any of the proposed solutions in Congress address these challenges? Uh, yes, no, that's a, that's a very interesting question because, to put it very simply in a nutshell, the main problem people face is that there are no other avenues, no other categories for them to be able to even apply for anything else. So we tend to think of asylum seekers as individuals opting for migrating in some of the most dangerous, life-threatening ways. And that is actually not an option among many other. It is actually the only option people have. And so when we talk about asylum seekers and what challenges they face, we have to think about what we have in terms of the overall asylum system, which is paired with the refugee system, and look at it as a whole. And what is the goal of these structures that are supposed to protect people who seek protection. The refugee system was created in a very different period of time to protect a very different group of people, people who were fleeing Europe post-World War II. And so the, the forces, the historical, political, economic forces were very, very different than what we have today. 
that infrastructure is very much linked to foreign policy. And so that's how we have, for instance, some groups of people seeking protection are extended protection and have been the receivers of protection for a long time and others have not. And that is sort of a formula that we have in the study of immigration in refugee and asylum seekers, where we know that the interest of the receiving country, the foreign policy interest weighed heavily and shape who is seen as deserving protection and who's not. We can put people from all over the world on the same plane and people will have very similar situations that they're fleeing, very similar life-threatening situations, but not all of them are going to be extended the same protection because foreign policy considerations inform who is seen as deserving and who's not. So for instance, in the case of asylum seekers at the border, most of them are Central Americans, but Central Americans have had a very difficult history of not being seen as deserving protection, even at the height of the civil wars in their countries in the 80s. Only one or two percent were extended asylum protection when people were being killed and disappeared every day in their home countries. And it is the same group that for 40 years has been excluded from the categories that have been put in place to classify people who are seen as deserving or not. So I think the challenge people have in confronting the asylum system is that they come from countries that have historically been excluded from being seen as deserving of protection. So when we have thousands of people from Central America needing to migrate, needing to leave their countries, even if they don't want to, we have interviewed people who really would not have wanted to leave, but they have received death threats. Their lives or their lives of their families are in danger. They see no other option but to leave their families and their communities in their countries. But they come from countries that have not been extended that protection because Central America plays a very different role in foreign policy than, for instance, Afghanistan or Syria or any country in the Middle East. We have to take into account foreign policy when we're talking about the categories of refuge and asylum that we have, because if those don't change, people are going to still face major challenges in trying to find a way to fit into these categories, quote unquote, legally, when there are no categories for them to enter. So that's the biggest challenge, mm -hmm. is that there are no other avenues for people to enter. And the proposals that we see that are being circulated are sort of band-aids. They are just simply tiny little bits around a major, major, major problem with the current system. Mm -hmm. Those are just band-aids that may have appeal to the public, especially during an election year. Right. And so that's how I see it based on how I've been doing research in this area and interviewing hundreds of migrants from Central America. Right, right. And Professor, what can be done based on those foreign policy considerations in the countries of origin to change the conditions that lead people to seek asylum elsewhere to begin with? As you said, they don't have any other options. So looking at those countries, I mean, I know this could be a topic of a whole other podcast, right? But what other things can be done about it? Yeah, what can be done about it is to 
change conditions for people so they don't have to leave, not create programs for people to be able to apply for asylum in the country, because those don't work really. What needs to be done is to really create conditions so that people won't leave. Believe me, people don't want to leave their families. People don't want to do that. So what the United States and other receiving countries can do is rather than approaching increased migratory flows with punitive measures that include further militarizing the border and further militarizing the entire country of Mexico to stop Central Americans and, and migrants from all over the world who are traveling to Central America, all the way from South America to come to the U.S. southern border. It's to really work with policies that change conditions in the countries where migrants come from, to provide meaningful employment that is not just maquila work, to provide better conditions for social benefits so that people won't see the need to leave. Changing those conditions is also going to reduce the levels of violence because a lot of the violence in these countries happen very much connected to poverty and inequalities. So approaching the issue of increased migratory flows and increased asylum seekers, instead of focusing on individual motivations to leave, a broader approach that connects to foreign aid, foreign policy should be implemented. I can talk more about this because we have been also paying attention to what China is doing in Central America and in the rest of Latin America, increasing their presence, not through punitive measures, but through public works, building a library, building schools. And that is where I think the United States should be looking to improving conditions, improving access to health care, to schools, to creating employment opportunities for people so they won't have to leave. And that will also address the issue of rates of violence. So I will stop there, but that's just one segue to the connection to foreign policy that I've been talking about. No, thank you for that. Ms. Brown, given your experience working for presidential administrations from opposite political parties, do you believe that common ground can be found on this issue especially considering that the last major immigration reform passed over three to four decades ago. Well, we always seek common ground and we always hope that people can come together. But I think if you take nothing else away from this podcast, I think it's worth understanding that this is a complicated issue. As Cecilia mentioned, at the end of the day, it's conditions in the countries people are leaving that is the factor that's driving most of them to leave. But changing those conditions is a long-term prospect. We could invest a lot of money in foreign aid, and we are increasing that, but we've seen historically it takes a long time and money on itself doesn't make the changes. There's governmental issues. But I'd also say that we now have new players in the migration game in the nature of transnational criminal organizations that now see migration as a money-making operation for themselves. And so they are investing 
in encouraging more migration and promising travel benefits, other things like that, that are encouraging more migrants to leave. There are the factors of people see the United States as a place of protection, of safety, where they can make a living, where they can do better and improve the lives of themselves and their children. That's not going to change. And so that's a major factor that migrants want to come here as opposed to wherever else in the world they might go. And lastly, it is the fact that Cecile and I both mentioned, should they want to come, say, just to work, the limitations we have on our legal immigration system. So to get a green card, you pretty much have to have either a family member in the United States that can sponsor you for a green card or an employer in the United States who knows you and is willing to sponsor you for a green card. And even then, that process could take years. There aren't a lot of temporary work visas. Some of them have limitations. And the temporary visas are just that temporary. We have people that work in agriculture, but the employers have mostly been recruiting from Mexico for that, not in Central America or these other countries. So you have to change a whole labor market dynamic to help them recruit and bring people in from other places. We have a temporary non-agriculture category that has a cap. It's only 66,000 visas a year. So by that nature, it's limited. This administration has tried to use some other authorities under immigration law to create other legal programs like parole to help deal with certain nationalities. And those have been somewhat successful, but again, they're limited. And to put it in bigger context, what we're seeing at our border is a fraction, a tiny fraction of the number of people worldwide who have left their home countries and are seeking better lives elsewhere. We are living in the largest number of displaced people in history, or at least since World War II, according to the UN. So this is a global phenomenon. It's not just about us, and it's not just about the border. And I think those factors all make this very, very complicated to figure out solutions, because we're not really going to solve worldwide migration. What we can do is try to figure out how do we manage what we are seeing in our own system better. And I think it's going to include all of those things. The real solutions are we do need to invest in the sending countries. We need to address the criminal organizations that are preying on the migrants and facilitating external migration. We need to work with the countries who are along the routes. You have countries that are like, well, instead of trying to adopt ways that people can find haven in our country, if they're trying to get to the United States, I'll help them. I'll put them on a bus through my country and send them north, which is just passing the problem along to other countries, which is not helpful. We need to help those countries find better ways so they can support the migrants who are in their countries, particularly Mexico, which is now a transit and receiving country. We need to look at policies that say, if you come to the border and ask for asylum, we will treat you humanely, but we will adjudicate your case fairly quickly. Right now, we have years and years it can take. We should be finding ways to do that in months so that people have some certainty. Are they going to be able to stay or not? The problem is that in Congress, you do have a very strong difference of opinion about what it's going to take to solve the problem of migration. On one side, you have mostly Republicans, although there's some Democrats who think that what we need to do is just deter people and prevent people from coming, get the numbers down as soon as possible, and do so through punitive measures. 
on the other side, I think you have people who say there's nothing wrong with our asylum system. We can welcome people. We just need to expand our capacity to do so. I think neither of those positions are fully correct. As I said earlier, I don't believe, and I work for an organization that's bipartisan, so I look at what's the reality of what we can do right now. And the reality of what we can do right now is we are not going to be able to fund our asylum system at the capacity needed for the volume of people that are seeking to enter it right now. So we need to find a way to address the number of people entering the system. And that probably means some changes to how it's processed. But in the long run, we also need to address the foreign policy concerns. We need to work with Mexico. We need to go after these criminal organizations. But we need to do all of this in a humane manner. It's not going to be easy, and nobody's going to be satisfied with the end result. And at the end of the day, whatever the people on the Hill have to come up with, they have to have enough votes to pass it and get it signed into law by the president. Right. Um, and then they have to face an election in 2024 and defend that vote to their constituents. That makes it politically challenging to get a deal done right now. And I think all of those things make it, in my personal opinion, unlikely we're going to see a deal this year. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry to say. Final thoughts, Professor. I mean, it is a complicated discussion. There's so many factors that weigh in. Moving forward, what would be the takeaway that you would like to leave us with? Following what Tracy just said, people who arrive at the border are a tiny fraction a very tiny, infinitesimal fraction of the people who move globally. And in fact, globally, there is only a 2-3% of people who participate in migration. Of all the population in the world, only 2-3% migrate. And out of that 2-3%, a tiny fraction in the thousands come to the U.S. southern border. So. We need to add perspective to public discourses about migration because when we hear in the news, we think that there's an invasion of millions of people coming at the, at the border from all over the world. And it's actually not the case. And so we have to think and, and add context to that. And another piece of the, that we need to take into account is, yes, foreign aid takes a while to take root and change conditions. but foreign aid cannot be continued to be funneled to governments that are not doing very much for their people. So that's another, that's for foreign policy. And then third, when we define a situation as a crisis, it has real consequences in terms of the policies that are enacted when we think of immigration as a problem, as a crisis, because we forget that the United States society and the economy benefit quite a bit from immigration, from migration. People who come at the southern border seeking protection often enter the labor force in the sectors of the economy that need quite a bit of labor force. And so when we define and when we think of asylum seekers at the border as a problem that needs to be addressed, as a crisis that we are obsessed with, it enacts policies that tend to exacerbate the situation for the people who are seeking protection and for the people who are already here. It creates, for instance, incentives for criminal networks to engage in the smuggling of humans. It wasn't this way in the past when the southern border was not as fortified militarily as it is today. 
people used to move freely through Mexico. And when the southern U.S. border started to become more militarized, it provided incentives for these criminal networks to grow and participate in the smuggling. But those policies come as a result of framing the people at the border as a crisis, as a problem to be solved. And I think we need to take into account the humanity of the people who come at the border and what they represent for U.S. society and economy, if we're going to be practical about this. They fulfill niches in the economy that and sustain towns around the country, the economy of towns around the country that we cannot forget. For instance, the meatpacking sector in the Midwest is primarily supported by migrants who come to the border. And there's just one quick example. So I just want to make sure that we think of asylum and what we have at the border in, in a different way, not so much as a problem and a crisis to be solved. Thank you for that. And Ms. Brown, any concluding thoughts that you'd like to leave the listeners with? Yeah, I, I think I would just say that we're focusing so much about what's happening at the border, but we've all talked about like there's a lack of other legal ways for many, many immigrants to come to the United States. So what we really need is reform of the entire immigration system. Mm-hmm. Cecilia is right. We need workers in many sectors of the economy. We have an aging and slowing set of population growth, which will impact the ability of our economy to grow in the future. We're frankly not having enough babies to replace our current population. So without immigration, our population will shrink. And that has all kinds of negative economic consequences for the future. So immigrants are one way of mitigating that. Our history of immigration to the United States has shown that immigrants are long-term contributors to the United States. We have all of these arguments all the time about the latest round of immigrants, but the reality is that we would not be where we are today, but for the immigrants of the past and the immigrants of now are the same immigrants who want to come and work and contribute. I think the challenge is not that immigrants are coming. Ronald Reagan is the one who said, we need to be that shining seat on the hill. It's a great thing that immigrants want to come to the United States. The challenge we have is the way they are coming and managing that. And we have brought some of that on ourselves by restricting the ways that people can come in, by limiting so drastically, and by not updating our laws in more than 30 years. The Refugee Act is from 1980. Mm -hmm. The last update to our legal immigration system was 1990. In 1996, we created these exceptions to border policy for asylum and these thresholds. That's the last time we really looked at how we process asylum seekers at the border. All of these laws are far, they're not up to the task of really addressing the migration that we're seeing right now, nor the needs of our country. And that is Congress's fault. And you asked me earlier, can they come to agreement? Whether they can or can't, they have to, because these issues will not, they will get worse. Managing this, addressing it, being able to make this a benefit rather than a problem can only happen if Congress seriously engages and updates these laws. And that's got to happen on a bipartisan basis. And they need to be able to come to the table and really do the hard work 
of crafting bipartisan policy. It will necessarily be a compromise. Not everybody will be happy with the outcome. It won't be everything anybody wants, but we can't keep in this stagnation and stalemate. We have to move forward. Well, thank you both for an illuminating conversation and also for your time and your expertise and the important work that you do in the field of immigration and asylum policy. I really appreciate it, and I know our listeners appreciate it as well. So that's all for now. Thank you for listening, and please join us for our next episode of Immigrant Lives. <music>